0: What
1: we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from, if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any doubt this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 Knows. 10,000 Knows is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am.
0: I realized at a very young age, you put your groceries down in order of priority.
1: Welcome to episode 18. Uh, I got a chance to sit down with Roger Fishman. He is a photographer who does wildlife photography all over the world, crazy stuff. Uh, But his story is uh, fascinating. Uh, From a childhood where he had to deal with uh, a lot of adversity, uh, multiple jobs, very successful in many different areas, and then left it all to do photography around the world. Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed listening to it uh, in person and enjoy the show. We are here with uh, Roger Fishman and he is a photographer, but that is um, that's just scratching the surface and we're going to get into uh, everything that he's done or at least some of the things that he's done. Uh, on his path to where he is now, uh, thank you for mm-hmm. thank agreeing you. to sit down with of me. Of
0: course, <laughs> thanks for being crazy enough to ask me.
1: Oh yeah, no, just the, the few conversations we've had, um, I have been able to see that there there's going to be a wealth of of story and <laughs> <laughs> kind of origin story um, that I'm really interested in getting getting into, and I think people will benefit from hearing. As Uh, long as
0: everyone's having their cup of coffee (laughs) right now, so they'll stay awake.
1: They'll stay awake now. It's all good. uh, Well, you know, I I usually kind of, well, I don't really have a format, but uh, a lot of times I'll go back to kind of the beginning and and bring it forward. But because I'm here in Roger's house and his studio, his photography studio, he just showed me some amazing pictures from a recent trip to Iceland where he was apparently hanging out of a helicopter at, what, 1,500 feet yeah. um, and shooting these pictures. And they're, they're, really, I've never seen anything like them. They're raw nature from above. And it's these uh, water patterns and, and, I guess, water with silt and coming down from glaciers. And you can see uh, some birds flying by and some of them very tiny in the distance. And he'll describe them better than I could, or you could go to his website and see some of them. I don't know if they're available yet, but really uh, just amazing the perspective that he has on the world from up there and, and comparing them to some of the pictures, the prints that I'm looking, wow, this one's amazing, that I'm looking at in the room where we are right now. He does a lot of nature photography. Where Africa, Antarctica, this is
0: Antarctica. Yeah, Antarctic continent, the peninsula.
1: Yeah, I mean, just amazing shots of animals in their natural state in their natural environment. And then these shots from Iceland are uh, really—it's topography. Uh, Are all of them that way? The the kind of from above aerial shots of the topography, and it's. Uh, Mind-blowing, and and as we were looking at them, I said they're kind of like a Rorschach. Yeah. Like I, I was picking things out of them. That he said, "Oh, nobody's ever said that." And everybody comes in and sees something different in them. Um, amazing shots. And do you want to start? I feel like you were so excited about that trip. Maybe we could start uh, by talking about that.
0: Well, look, Iceland, you know, to me, really, just sort of touches my soul because it's just pure nature, pure beauty. And on this trip, you know we I was up in a helicopter with Melissa who works for the May and we just took the door off the helicopter and flew around for about four days and so I had a seatbelt on obviously <laughs> uh, and just hung out of a helicopter looking for these sort of abstract ethereal exquisite uh, views of Primarily, a glacial river melts and turning into these river braids. And what I fell in love with is not just the pure beauty. It's it's that you get to see our planet in a different way, a completely different way, and feel it in a completely different way, and fall in love with it in a completely different way. And you get to recognize that we are so connected to nature. And when you think about the parallels between water, you know, when it starts with you know, a snowflake being created that lands, one little snowflake, but eventually it turns into a glacier. You think about it as like one human being, and then you have a whole planet of 8 billion people. And over time, as it forms, it also moves down the mountain, and it carves and sculpts the mountain. And it takes with it that experience, and the minerals, and the moraine. And then it also interacts with wind, rainfall, in some cases snow, the silt below, ocean water, the rivers. And just like us, we're a combination of all of our experiences. So we are each our own snowflake, and yet we're part of this amazing glacier on planet Earth. And you know, glaciers are 100% water, obviously, or primarily. And we're primarily created and composed of water, too. So there's a lot of similarities. And for me, it's sort of just core to my existence that Iceland and its beauty connect to me. Yeah. Well, you it's very cool to hear you describe it
1: because you're so um, philosophical about it. Uh, which makes me want to ask you uh, how you came, you you know, so you you have been doing this photography around the world for how long now where this has been your sole focus? My
0: sole focus? Probably only five or six years. Five or six years. Exclusively doing this.
1: But you came from a very different world. Right. And do you think that the philosophy has, was the philosophy, the philosopher within you there way back when you were a kid and that's kind of what led you here? Or do you think as you've gone along, you've kind of learned these life lessons and it's slowly developed you to where you are now because the way you describe it is beautiful and it's it's more like a poet describing it than someone who is... Saying, yeah, we got there, we got the helicopter, we came out. And I've, you know, I've, you've told me those stories as, as well of kind of the logistics okay. of it, but it's, it's, you
0: have a very deep view of it. And I'm just wondering if you. It's all of what you said. I mean, literally, you know, it's it's growing up in a broken family and what you learn from that. It's growing up financially poor and what you learn from that. It's learning lessons from what you do want out of your life and what you don't want out of your life from growing up in difficult situations. And then I think as we all go, it's kind of like that glacier. You know, we're being sculpted and we are sculpting ourselves and the people we're with by our life and our experiences. So I always feel like if if I wander and I wonder about life then I'll gain some wisdom from it, which is more like the philosophical side. And at the same time, I believe we should have a lot of fun in life. I feel like that's the great thing about being a kid. And you know, I think about your son and, you know, and, and my son, and they're almost always smiling. Yeah, They're almost always having fun. And when you have that in your soul and in your heart, you want to keep that going. So... I had a large portion of my life where I just wanted to not be poor like I was when I grew up.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that? how bad was it? Um,
0: well, I, was, I always say it's all relative yeah. to both your attitude and to the practical impact of it. So my parents had a really bad marriage. So my mother my mother was an orphan twice. It's a whole different story right there. Yeah. My father was first generation, and they got married, and they shouldn't have. And he was a doctor, general practitioner, who didn't really want to practice medicine. I think he did that to prove to his parents that he could be successful, and that he was smart.
1: Where were they? Where was he from?
0: Uh, he lived in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Okay. But his parents were from, my understanding, Russia. Okay. So he had a twin sister as well. So there was always a sort of competition between them. So he ended up being the doctor who didn't really want to be the doctor. You know, he liked to sail. He had a little dinghy. He liked to make furniture. He had his own lathe. He liked to read philosophy. Uh, I think he was a very creative, curious, intellectual person to even back what 50 years ago his patients were families because it was the GP, but you know, he was dealing with what's now mainstream. Homosexuals, hippies, (laughs) pot smokers. Like back then people weren't really embracing and accepting of all, but my father did. It was just how he was my mother actually was the same. So they actually had that kind of similarity. Right. As well as my mother's really smart, really uh, creative, a non-traditional thinker. So they had a lot of things that were similar, but their past they couldn't get through on their own or together. They just they didn't know how, didn't try. And so when they got divorced, my mother decided to divorce my father. And he had a... <laughs> You know, we have two other siblings, I have two older sisters. You know, and he had had heart attacks. So the ambulance had come to the house. Uh, the police had come, at least on one occasion. They actually arrested my mother, which was kind of weird because my mother's like five foot tall. And she's like holding a chair over her head, like threatening him. I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> my mother can't hurt anybody, even with a chair. Over and they head. arrested her. And they arrested her. Uh, so finally, after years of him living downstairs and her living upstairs and then fighting top of stairwell, bottom of stairwell, you know, which as a child is really scary yeah. and because that's supposed to be your safe place. And there wasn't a sense of emotional or psychological or financial security. She finally divorced him. And the first thing he did, or one of the first things he did that I can remember is uh, he canceled all of her credit cards. And back then, the cards were typically in the husband's name. Yeah. So all of a sudden, there's there's really no money. So finally, the court system had to work through about how much he would give, which was nominal. And we also had to go to court about where would we live as kids. And back then- And you're how
1: old at this point?
0: You know, I never remember the exact age. 7. And I think younger. it was like between 8 and 10. I'd yeah, have to yeah. ask my sisters. Yeah. And I just remember going to court, going in front of a judge who was up high at the time and, and him just looking at down at me and saying, okay, so who do you want to live with? Yeah, makes me want to cry right now if I think about ever being put in that position. And having to make that choice, yeah. And, you know, because who do you tell yes to and no to and... You're a little kid. That's right. just not fair, or right? So that you know, that's always made me sort of hypersensitive to a lot of things for kids. And, uh, so, anyhow, my mother you know was working as a dental hygienist six days a week, two dollars an hour. She'd leave at six thirty in the morning. She'd get home like seven o'clock at night. So you were by yourself a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. Once my sisters took off, when I was, I think, 14, I was pretty much on my own. And
1: this is in Connecticut.
0: This is in Connecticut outside New Haven, okay. a nice little town called Orange. Uh, and so like, if we had bad weather, which we did back then, snow rise, you know, I'd get up early, I'd shovel a bit of the driveway, put some salt down, help push my mother's car up the driveway so she would get to work. And then I'd make breakfast and you know, get ready for school. Uh, and then at one point, my mother just came home and said, look, I want to show you a few things around here. She goes, This is a washer and dryer. I know you like clean clothes. Here's how you use a washer and dryer. Just, I know you like your clothes ironed and pressed and look nicely. So here's how you use an iron. Always remember to unplug it, <laughs> always <laughs> unplug it and don't put it near any paper or anything. And then she said, And here's the kitchen stove.
1: Uh, yeah. Again, we have, uh, we have lawnmowers going yeah. up and everything, but James Eade, who is like a mastermind uh, sound Continue. guy, will probably get rid of it by okay. the time people hear this.
0: So she said, here's a kitchen and here's how you use the stove and like, don't leave it on. Like, don't burn the house down. This is all we have. So it was a great lesson in how to be independent, how to take care of yourself. And also taught me not only independence, but in, for the future, What did I want in a partner and a spouse, right? So I could do all the functional stuff. What I really wanted was someone there to really have intimacy with, to be a partner with, to be a friend with, because I knew the other stuff I could do on my own. Right. So I was like a real gift. Didn't feel like a real gift at the age of 13 or 14. So you felt
1: like you were, you almost developed to be a logistics guy at that age because you had to. Yeah,
0: you had to know how to get you things done. You knew how done. to get stuff done. Well, also, I be, became a logistics guy because we'd go to the grocery store, we'd put stuff in our basket and then we'd go up and check out. And then as the lady would ring it up, sometimes we'd say, "Oh, wait a second, you know, we don't have enough money. So we'd have to take things out of the basket and out of the bags. And then I realized at a very young age, you put your groceries down in order of priority. So there's a sequence and a logistics. And I know that sounds almost like crazy or silly, but that's what I had to do and learn with my mother so you wouldn't be embarrassed at the grocery line and holding people up. Because it is kind of embarrassing when you think, well, oh, we can't afford that. So we have to put it back and then have to deduct it. So you learn logistics, you know, planning, you know, about priorities. And that's just how it was. And to this day, when I go to a grocery store, I always walk in and I'm always truly moved because I think, wow, all this is available. These fruits, these vegetables, the colors, these shapes, and all this food and everything comes around the world. And I can actually buy the groceries, I can afford them. So even to this day, when we're, I'm checking out, I don't prioritize anymore, but I know when I go to pay for them, I put my credit card in, I still have that feeling like, oh my God, will it be approved?
1: Huh, that's interesting because, you know, you you live in this beautiful house, beautiful part of town, um, obviously done many amazing things very successfully. And to hear... It's kind of as I suspected, but that that's still, you, you don't, you don't lose that kid inside you that yeah. is, that, that had to deal with that. Yeah. I think So that's, oh, it's never lost on you. No.
0: Look, I think certain things get wired, you know, into your brain. It's like there's hardware and software. So I don't sleep well at night, generally speaking. And if I hear a noise, I'm on high alert because it triggers my parents fighting. So when I was a little kid, when they would fight and then I was probably even five at that time, sometimes I would h- crawl under my bed and hide because I was so scared. They were just screaming at each other. And, you know, when you're a kid, you feel like you're in a glass house and it's all trying to crash and crumble on you. Right. And sometimes you just, you know, almost like, you know, you, you want to be buried or you want to just die. Um, this is how I felt because, you know, as a kid, You're completely dependent upon your parents. I always say to my friends, kids don't want to upset parents. They need you for safety, physical safety, emotional safety, love, food. The kids want us to be happy. Right. So when they make a mistake, it's always an accident. If you have a good relationship, they are genuinely sorry. We all make mistakes. But that stuff does stick with you. And it does to this day. So if I hear some in the house, were or, you
1: ever w- w- was there any physical abuse to you guys? It, no, or, not no. to the kids. Yeah. But
0: the, but my father threatened my mother. My yeah. mother, you know, would have her you know arguments and yelling at my father. But it was always like upstairs, downstairs. So a stairwell in a house sometimes can sort of be like a trigger, especially when if I'm in a house sleeping in a house when the, the stairs would creak. Yeah, an issue. If there's noise downstairs. I, I'm a, I'm alert. Yeah. So I think, you know, what did I learn from my childhood? One of the things I learned is I want my family and our children, in this case our son, to always feel safe emotionally, psychologically, and physically safe. So I try to take from everything and say, how do I apply it? How yeah. do, what did I learn from it?
1: And then do you also, at the same time as making him feel safe, do you also do little things where you'll give him independence or you'll give him tasks or or things like that to give him responsibility the way you got, maybe not in the same way that you, it was forced upon you in a way, but do you do little things like that? Look,
0: there's there's a motivation, obviously my part, to give our son or help give our son a foundation so, one, he can be the best he can be. So he wants to, one, have fun, to learn, to be his best, live positive and with integrity would give him the ability to go fly. So I took what I went through and said, how do I apply that now in a positive way? So instead of being forced to do all those other activities of cooking, cleaning, washing, drying, which is really not a big deal. Now I go, okay, now how do I apply that to him? But in the healthy way. Right, in a supportive way, but also give him a chance to feel a sense of independence. So yeah, we have a lot of things that he does in order to help him in that regard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and you um, so you graduated high school in Connecticut? Barely. Barely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you you went to undergrad or did you go right into the No, workforce? I went to undergrad
0: and on the East Coast? Yeah, George Washington University in D C. Okay. And I was far from being a stellar student. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, I did what most people did. I, I drank too much, studied as little as possible. I played baseball. I did walk down to our team's uh, baseball team my uh, freshman year.
1: And played all four
0: years? No, I played the first semester, and then I had to go get a job because I needed money to pay for school. Yeah. So I was always working throughout college. At one point I had my own business, a little mini media poster business. Really? What yeah. was that what was that? Well, I realized that there was a an unmet need, which is back then. Trying to wait?
1: No, nah, we we'll just do it. Okay. Mondays are think, <laughs> gardening day in uh in LA. <laughs> that's
0: good. In Ten minutes. Uh, <laughs> good. so I realized that kids didn't know the schedules in the fall semester and spring semester, so they couldn't plan properly. So I put together a poster, a large poster, uh, two feet by three feet or larger, of the school calendar in the spring and the summer, or the fall and the summer. And then talked about special events so kids could put it up on the wall and see everything. And then I just sold sponsorship to it. And then huh. I had some of my friends come with me, and we had to slide them under every dorm door across college campus. So that was like one of my jobs. I did everything for So you
1: slid the money. So, so you would make the money from the sponsorships. right. Print And, you, in and, the and slid. you would give them. Yeah, give the posters
0: free. For free. But to make sure the distribution was what done do properly. Mistakes? This is pretty. Uh, 1981. It was a while ago.
1: That's pretty, pretty uh, smart business <laughs> right, sense right, to. Yeah. to you know, to figure that out, that to go for the money from the sponsors and to give it out for free as opposed to going to college students that aren't going to spend their extra beer money to, to buy a uh, poster.
0: Fear and desper- desperation are good motivators. Yeah. You know, when you really... He'll, he'll be done he's right
1: there. we're actually going to be we're going to be weed lacking in,
0: uh, in this almost this living room very gentleman. soon but no but, but you know it's everybody
1: please forgive us this is uh, you know this is what happens this is a luxury you know, this is problem part of the raw luxury problem the raw authenticity of 10,000 no's the podcast
0: I would say you know fear and desperation you know you need to put food on your own plate in college you go figure things out and when I was in high school I was in 7th grade and 13 and I didn't have any money so I started selling candy so I'd go to my local uh, drugstore, and I'd buy penny and Nikki, nickel candy and then I'd go to school and because I knew kids couldn't buy candy because their parents wouldn't let them I then took penny candy. You were candy. like the black market. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right I was like <laughs> no I knew there was a demand and I was the supplier. <gasps> Sugar supplier. So, you know, I sold things for, you know, a penny to a nickel or a nickel to a quarter. And that's how I made money. And then I also learned that some people don't like to pay their bills on time.
1: And so did you, and then did go, you have an enforcer? I was yeah. the enforcer.
0: I was the enforcer. I thought there's a, there's a simple way to do business. You know, I give you what you want. You know what the terms are. You pay me then. And if you don't, I'll come get it from you. <laughs> so yeah, I was. I had to be the creative guy, the business guy. I had to deal with cash flow, yeah. and I had to be the enforcer. Yeah. So, but these are all good lessons you learn. Well, speaking so, of
1: that, were you were you a fighter back back
0: then? Did you get into a lot of scraps? Or uh, no, I don't think so. I, I always, honestly, were I'd you always, big for your? I was a age? fairly good sized kid, but I think, like most people, I really didn't want to fight.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, I didn't look for it. I didn't try to start any. i tried actually probably try to avoid it. But I always thought out of principle, if someone had made agreement with me, that they had to honor the agreement. Because I always say, if you make a promise, you keep a promise. I said to my son, doesn't matter if you remember the promise, but the person who hears it remembers the promise, you have to honor that promise. So I would just say to people, you know, we made a deal. You owe me the money. And if they wouldn't pay it, then... I would sometimes literally have to take things into my own hands <laughs> as a 13-year-old.
1: <laughs> That's great. And then, and then, so you did that in high school and yeah. then in college you had the, the media.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, media, but I was a bartender, a bouncer. I ran uh, I a, well. a furniture store outlet. I taught people how to lift weights. I got paid for that. Uh, you name it, whatever I had to do to hustle, You know, I was determined uh, to stay in college, even if I wasn't studying, uh, but I was determined to f- feed myself, you know, and, and also have fun along the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you got out. Well, then, what, yes, literally grew-
0: I got out. I got out after four and a half years, Yeah. Uh, but I didn't graduate. Oh, really? No, I, I was not the best student. My Did friend, you ever
1: go back and get your degree, or get an I, I, honorary degree? I, no, 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 complaint. no, no. I, mm. I got my
0: degree. What happened is my first semester, you know, you take five courses I usually don't talk about this publicly, but it's oh, fine. Oh, <laughs> No, no, it's cool. I just took five courses. I took four because I was playing baseball. Uh, and I successfully got a 1.25 GPA with four courses, two Cs and a D and an F. Yeah. My mother had a meltdown. I said, Mom, it's all good. Don't worry about it. She's you're going to flunk out. I said, I got two Cs and a D. I only... Flunked one class. She goes, yeah, but you didn't take the fifth one. <laughs> so then the next semester, I got a 275. And the next semester, I got on the dean's list. and But I was always a few courses behind. So my last semester in school, uh, four and a half uh, years, I wanted to take six classes to graduate. And the dean of the, of the undergraduate school wouldn't let me. Why? He said I wasn't qualified, able to take six classes because he didn't think based on my track record I could do it. So I went to see him, and I walked in.
1: And you were the enforcer. I, well,
0: <laughs> well, as best as I could. He yeah. was in the position of power. Yeah. But I sat down with him, and I said, look, you know, I I was interning this summer in New York. I had a job. and They've offered me a job for when I finish this semester. So I need to finish this semester because I really need the job. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, no, it's my decision and I won't let you. And I said, look, I I appreciate that, but I have a job offer and I need that job. And so he said, no, and he picked up his phone and started dialing the phone, because back then there were rotary phones. So this guy was probably in his 40s. Here I am, 21, 22. And I look at him and I say, so that's how you deal with conflict? You ignore it? You just pick up a phone and ignore me? And he took the phone off his ear and he starts shaking and he put it down. And he said, I've made my decision. And I looked at him and I said, you forget something this is a private university, I help pay your salary. I said, you may not like that, but it's true. So while you may have the final decision on six classes versus five, I have the final decision of whether I stay or I leave. So I will take my five classes and I will finish up my degree later and elsewhere. And I got up and I left. And that's what I did. I finished my four and a half years at George Washington. Went to Europe for six weeks. Took out a bank loan for that. Literally took out a bank loan. Huh. Slept on trains. By yourself. Yes. And I slept, you know, in the, you know literally on streets and train stations, in cubbyholes, stairwells, because I was trying to save money. In the course of that time, I lost about 15 pounds. So I literally was trying not to spend money, came back and I had a job in New York and I started working.
1: So they let you t- take the job. They didn't care if you had your degree or not. It's
0: my decision. Oh, you mean the, the job? The job. Oh, right? I didn't tell them. <laughs> well, no, yeah. I didn't tell them. So in case they're listening they're now, <laughs> 30, 35 years later, yeah, no, I never- What was that job? Uh, it was a database marketing uh, company. It's called Wonderman now, a uh, big, big global firm, great people and-
1: did you stay there for a while?
0: I stayed there for a couple of years. But it's interesting because I worked for them as a summer intern. And to get that internship was really difficult. I sent out 50 resumes blindly and to New York. And I ended up getting some interviews. And I was down to two different agencies. And one was to work in a research department of a big agency. And one was to work in essentially account management for this database marketing firm. The research department was run by a guy, time probably in his 40s or 50s, very conservative. The lady running the intern program at the database firm, wonderful woman, uh, Andrea Mayer, uh, 26 years old, very dynamic, very smart. And I never heard back from either one of them. And I'm waiting and waiting, and I'm really getting anxious because I need a, a job, and I need to get a job to get the next job, a permanent job. right? So I send them both a dozen helium balloons, colorful balloons, and I have no money, but I just said, this is what I'm gonna go do. And the note to each of them was, uh, I'm up in the air waiting to hear from you. Thank you for your consideration, Roger. Huh. The research guy, Rightfully, so, being conservative, didn't find that appealing, I guess <laughs> the woman uh, Andrea, received them on a Friday, <clears throat> but she happened to be in London, so when she came into her office on the weekend, had a dozen brightly colored helium balloons with that note from me, Sam up there waiting to hear from you. She loved it so much, she thought the creativity was great, the thinking was different uh that I was trying to find a way to really get to the top of the opportunity list, that she called me right away and she said, "You know, I'm looking at a lot of other people, but you get it. No one's ever done anything this creative. So that was a good lesson for me about continuing to take risks, continue to bet on yourself, use your own money, because that was the end of my money. Yeah. Uh, But it led me to that job, which then led me to an offer for when I graduated. So it was just. Also a lesson to people, I think
1: that, look, you did the identical thing for two different companies. One of them, it was a big hit and it led to the start of a career. Mm -hmm. The other one, the guy could care less. And if you only sent it to the other one and you got no response, a lot of people's Response to that would be, oh, it didn't work. What a dumb idea. I never should have done that. And they shut down. Whereas if you, sometimes you can keep doing something until you get the answer that you're looking for. Yeah,
0: well, it's to that point, which I think is great. I look at life a little bit like playing pinball. Pinball, you keep the ball in play and you get points. And over time, you get more and more points. The goal is to keep the ball in play or I should say the strategies to keep the ball in play. But if you just go for the big hit, odds are you're going to miss the ball and get nothing. So to me, life is about keeping the ball in play. You increase your opportunity. And what I love about the pinball metaphor, for me at least, is you can't always see how they're all going to connect, all the dots and all the places and how the ball will move around. But there actually is a rhythm and a reason and a beautiful rhyme to how it will all work if you have an open head and an open heart. And then all of a sudden the pinball game starts to be more like a symphony. It feels less random. It feels more like an orchestration. Not of your control, right? completely not of your control, but be only to the openness of your spirit. And then you get to see how all these pieces can work together. But you have to keep the ball in play.
1: hmm so I know I, I agree uh, with you. How do you defend that to someone who's out there going like, oh, that's a bunch of BS. It just, it just worked out for him. And it's easy for him to say right now, well, you know, what, what's, but I know you, it sounds like you've had a lot of things to overcome, uh, but I'm just saying, I, I would imagine someone that is out there.
0: Thinking, I, I, look, we all have reasons for what we think and feel and believe. And I tend to be a prag optimist I'm very sort of pragmatic, but I'm also an optimist because that's how I am DNA-wise, and that's how I want to live. That doesn't mean I don't have fear. That doesn't mean I don't have doubt or pessimism. But I genuinely look at my life, and I realize that the more open-hearted I am, the more open-minded I am, the more good things happen, and the more that actually I give to others and just to help out, the more I get back. And I don't mean get back like a, a monetary gain. One, I just feel good by helping others. But it's amazing how good energy and, and good karma builds on each other. Like a pinball, you're keeping it all in play. And you can't see it at the time. Sometimes you're so lost, you're so scared in your current situation that you cannot believe anything good's going to happen. And And that makes sense. And it's right but it's the long-term perspective that allows you to have the possibility, not the probability in life, but the possibility of good things working out. And to me, life is all about possibility. Because probability to me is about, if I do this, this will happen. And I don't think most of life is like that, at least in my experience. And I think most people sort of seek out comfort, right? We wanna get away from discomfort. And I actually think, for me, I do the opposite. I, I, I try to get comfortable with discomfort. I think if you seek discomfort, it becomes your new comfortable norm. And then everything can be an opportunity. But when you only seek comfort, that means you're trying to avoid all the risks or the pain or the challenges because you just want to get to that destination. And so I look at it just slightly differently. I think get comfortable with discomfort. And for me, that's the norm I put myself in and how I've lived my life professionally.
1: And that's still what you're doing now, I guess, when you think about you hanging out of...
0: A helicopter. A helicopter. Yeah, that's one, I, I mean, man. I
1: want to tell the, the story you told earlier, but I don't want to drop names. No, go names, right ahead. But can I just? The, the, no, the, the, I can't. No. Yeah. Anyway, a good story with someone that you everybody listening all knows, but it's a a, a funny story about Rogers uh, telling this this person who's a, a, a household name um, that I grew up with about how he was hanging out of a helicopter with basically just tape like a, a seatbelt and tape and and the guy looked at him like he was absolutely nuts and, and but I'm just thinking of like yeah. you know making you know discomfort your your norm and that's how you get these incredible shots right, right. but anyway go back to I don't want to no, knock no, no, that no. cuz I love where you're going no, though and
0: so i think our brains naturally seek safety and comfort physical, emotional, psychological, and we look for uh, ego validation and third-party validation. And so I've tried to, by going towards what I want and letting go of big jobs I've had, that I go towards my own validation, self-validation. Do I feel I'm living the life in my truest sense? Am I priorities and principles. Uh, And I constantly have to keep checking that and then also make sure that my priorities and principles are healthy ones, right? And that they're grounded in with good reason. And so that requires, you know, constant sort of reverb feedback on a regular basis just to make sure I'm staying true to it. But I really... Oh, go on. No, no, please. Uh, I was going to
1: ask you, I was going to say you talked about some of the big jobs you had that you left. Now, we don't need to go into them, but could you kind of, just to give people a perspective on what I find it unique, and I found this in probably our first conversation where we really talked, it sounds like you left some very uh, enviable positions behind to pursue your photography. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find that unique. I find that courageous. Obviously, you must have been in a good enough position to be able to logistically, financially do that. But I still think that people in this day and age have a very hard time reinventing themselves right. the way you did. Uh, could you talk about some of the? you know, you talked about that mm. first job where you had the helium balloons. Right. That led, that was in marketing.
0: That was yeah, in account marketing. And then that led to? Uh, a different ad agency, uh, also in New York. I just want to touch on one thing you said. I, I think we're all trying to create ourselves. Some people say, I, I want to find myself, or I want to find you know that ideal job. And I think life isn't about finding. And it's not about searching out there, wherever there is. I really think it's about us creating ourselves and creating our lives. And I don't mean in a logical way, a linear way, but it's the creation process that's core, I think, to us as a species. Because not only can we think things, but we can actually go do things. And that process of trial and error and experimentation and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work is all about the creative process. And it also is a process that allows you to acknowledge your anxieties, or your concerns, or your fears, and to your point earlier, you know, I left some very big jobs where I, I didn't have any, uh, financial backing that for myself, and I knew I needed to still go forward because I knew that's uh, where a better future had a chance of possibly happening, not probably happening, but possibly happening, and I really believe more than almost anything in my life, from a, a professional perspective as well as personal, I guess, is you have to bet on yourself. You have to bet on yourself because if you don't believe enough in yourself, nobody else will. Like No one's going to bet on you if you don't believe in yourself. So life is about betting and investing on yourself every step of the way. So that's what I've tried to do throughout. And I've taken a lot of risk. I used to be head of worldwide marketing for Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. I worked for Peter Chernin, uh, the president, who was an amazing, wonderful guy to work for. I learned a lot from him. He's a, a really good person. Uh, and I love that job. And I realized I needed to keep moving. And at one point, I moved to London to do a venture capital job where I traveled really around the world a lot for the work. And I came back home and ended up uh, getting recruited to run CAA's uh, corporate marketing division where my job was to uh sign new clients corporate clients and build out their market marketing division so we went from like one client to 14 while I was there and one of the big clients was Procter and Gamble but it took me 18 months and so prob-
1: CAA reps Procter and Gamble they did. they did they did they did okay
0: and then so
1: they took care of their marketing for they well they-, they had
0: their own agencies and everything else this was for entertainment specifically okay. so i okay. Procter & Gimble back then, now mind you, this is quite a while ago, never worked with the entertainment industry, but because of their importance to the brand and marketing industry, and the importance, therefore, to CAA to sort of build out their department, uh, I clearly understood and recognized the importance of signing them as a client. And it took me 18 months to do that, uh, with obviously the great support of my colleagues, So I was there for four years, and then I came to what I always call the obvious conclusion after working for a long time. I'm a lousy employee, and I really wanted to go better myself. Because I always thought, and I always start at the end, we're all gonna die. The question is, are we all gonna live? Are we all gonna really try? And I didn't wanna look up from a hospital bed and wonder, Why was I too scared to try? Because we're all going to end up here. I sometimes think about my father, you know, when he died and he was in the hospital having his heart attack, being worked on. And I thought, my God, he's looking up. He's probably these bright lights and these people working on him. What's his last thought and vision? Like, this is it? This is how I ended up? And I just thought, I wanted to make sure that when my moment comes that I can look up and say, I believed in myself, I bet on myself personally with my family and my friends, I did it on behalf of myself and the planet and the relationship I have with that and myself also creatively and also professionally. I wanted to make sure that I could look up and say, I believed and bet and invested in myself. I took those risks. And only one person can do that, me. Now, of course, along the way, I've had a tremendous amount of support from a lot of great people and learned from a lot of great people. As I mentioned, I learned a lot from Peter Chernin. He was truly the best person I've ever worked for. I learned so much from him. So I took all that with me and then started my own business. And fortunately, it all worked out very well did consulting work for Fortune 100 companies, actually was at the beginning of doing uh, content, almost like branded content, social media content for big corporations before anybody was really doing it because this was now 2005. Grew the business significantly. And then uh, my wife got pregnant, and it was about two months before our child was born. We didn't know if it was a boy or girl. We didn't want enough, And I said, I need to take my last trip. Once our child's born, I'm not going to be able to travel. My last trip. And for a range of reasons, I ended up going to Botswana. Timing probably was not great. (laughs) (laughs) There's no internet, really, connection. There's no sat phone connection. I'm going away from my wife. Didn't go over well with the wife. No, no, she was actually supportive, (laughs) but she's kind of like, you know, you could have picked it a little better. Maybe not, but that's Exactly. And I remember getting off the plane and going into the Delta and going out for a game drive and I saw a pride of male lions. Like 12 of them. It was unbelievable. And I just had this amazing feeling. Like it was almost like a glow and an energy in my whole system. And I thought, Oh, my God, this is all I want to do. I just want to, I want to be what I, I didn't realize I could ever be. I want to be an adventurer. I want to be an artist. And I want to be an activist on behalf of those without a voice. Those without a voice that we recognize, that we don't understand. They have their own voice, right? It's just not our voice. And it was at that moment I said, I need to have a transition, And so it took another about five years, and I eventually took our business. And we're consulting for like Ralph Lauren and for the son David, doing big projects for Procter & Gamble, big global projects uh, for the Olympics uh, and Yahoo. And I thought, this has been an amazing run. It's not true to me. I, I can let go of a lot of my fears Yes, because I've done well, but I can now truly embrace where I am and where I want to go. And I've been going to Africa once a year. And then once I sort of let go of so much of my past, and I don't just mean my professional past, it was my anxieties and fears and uncertainties. And you said, I've gone from place to place, and now I'm going to where I feel it's most true to me. And that's when I started embracing really being an active adventurer, an active artist, and an active activist in terms of being involved and in helping out different organizations.
1: And had you been into photography for a long time at this point or not no, really? Did no, you No, five
0: years earlier is when I went to Africa. Self-trained
1: or were you taking no, courses? No,
0: self-trained. And I was really miserable. I mean, I was horrible. If you look at my early work, I was a disaster. Really? Oh, yeah. I didn't even understand the settings on cameras. It can be, you know for me it was both intimidating, which is kind of silly. Uh, and at the same time gave me like a own anxiety. Like, will I be good at what I really want to be and who I want to be? I like, could I even understand the mechanics. And as I look back, you know, the th- first three to five years, there was a lot of learning and a lot of mistakes. You know, just and I still make a lot of mistakes. I try not to make them as often or at the at the crucial moments. Um but I'm constantly trying to get uncomfortable. So I would never really done photography out of a helicopter. And I needed to get a gyro to help stabilize it. I never worked with a gyro before. So I had to learn all this in like about two weeks and then get into a helicopter and the door off and fly around Iceland. And that was all brand new.
1: Now, mind you, everyone who's listening this sounds crazy, but he has other pictures from earlier trips. I'm looking at a picture right now of these elephants that he's extremely close to. He has other pictures uh, that you showed me a week or two ago. Of the, what were the bears in the in the river? Yeah, I mean, they're right there, yeah,
0: about five feet away from grizzly bears. I
1: mean, crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is. Yeah, I mean, I know you're talking about you know hanging out of a helicopter, but the other things yeah. that you did with the animals, yeah, yeah. I find amazing. The penguin pictures. You have. Did you say you had mirrors set up so that they could? Oh, get, that's another project. Oh, another, uh, okay. That's, a, that's a We won't point, even yeah. get. We won't even yeah, get the, into that.
0: Uh, but, but no, but for, no, with the grizzlies, we. I was within like five feet of them.
1: Is there any training for that? Or is that just you just make a decision, just, you're going to do this, and you're going to sit there in your...
0: You think rationally about what are the best ways to stay safe. And that usually, for most people, means sitting home. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like, how do I mitigate the risk of being surrounded by almost uh, grizzly bears? And it was a high season. They had lots of food. They were interested in the salmon. That really interested in May. Uh, I have a lot of fat on me, but not the type of fat they want, so that yeah. works out okay. Yeah. And you know, the cheetah. You no know, one else crawling to a cheetah, and we got with probably you know, eight to ten feet away. You know, just I on all fours, sliding over. You know, I remember asking my guy to have cheetah ever attacked humans before. He goes, "Not that I know of." It's <laughs> like that's not completely reassuring, but yeah. it'll be a great shot when I get it. The great image. Uh, and camping in Antarctica, you know, it's minus 40 below and you're going out in whiteout storms. And each time I have to say, it's not that I'm not uh, anxious. It's not like I don't have fear or uncertainty, but I prepare as best as possible. I learn from other people and from the experts. And then I try to be as safe as possible. While still being able to get way out of my comfort zone, yeah. So it's that balance of being. It
1: sounds like a focus. It sounds like a being in the zone. Yes, a complete if, zone. If you're a, an athlete, a performance, you, uh, you're a, a performer, an actor. Right. You know that focus, right? And you get lost. To
0: that. It's like a fugue state. You know, you get so lost that a lot of times I literally don't remember a lot of things that were going on because I'm so in that zone, in that zen of the moment. And that's when I feel like Trent genuinely connected to the universe. Like, I don't even exist, like, physically. I'm literally, like, I'm just, like, this small, small, little nothing connected to this amazing galaxy, you know, that I'm part of. And it's this, it's completely uh, magnetic and energetic. And at the same time, it's that way in the most peaceful, calm, spiritual way. Literally, I when I'm getting really close to, uh, grizzlies or polar bears, or I'm in mean, a whiteout, and, or hanging up a helicopter. I literally have this incredible sense of peace because you feel so part of something much greater than you, and you're, in a way, almost lost in the in the sheer beauty of it. It's it's almost it is indescribable. There's no words I can ever really share. Yeah.
1: Well. That's a perfect time for me to uh, ask you, is there somewhere people can see your work? I know uh, I think it's sold privately. Yes. But um, I know I've, when we talked about setting this up, Googled you just Roger Fishman yeah, it's photography, just, yeah. and there are lots of images out there. If anyone is interested in seeing what we've been talking about, I don't think the Iceland pictures are out no, yet. The
0: Iceland's not out, but, but just eventually right.
1: they will be. Yeah, um, and you just get a sense of of the risks that Roger's taken to bring these images back home for people to have them hanging in their living room. Yeah.
0: Um, it's it's just literally just my name, just Roger Fishman. Roger wasn't, wasn't much more. Great. Uh, I was thinking about this for a long time. What should the name be? Roger. That's, yes, I think. Uh,
1: yeah, I, 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 uh, I really thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, and Thank you very much as your, well. The way you frame everything has been really uh, comforting in a lot of ways for me and inspirational. And um, I hope everyone listening enjoys it as much as, as I'm enjoying it. Uh, Having this conversation in the moment, and um, that's it for now. Thank you
0: for joining. Thank you, it, thank joining you it, very thank much you for being here. Appreciate it, Matt.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Ten Thousand Knows. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do so. Each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks.